seat, grab a seat if you would, and as you do, get to a Bible in front of you to Acts chapter 15 this morning, Acts chapter 15, and uh, while you turn there, um, if you need a Bible under a seat nearby, you'll find one, grab one of those, and uh, while you find this in your Bible, I want to uh, tell you in a really exciting thing for the south side and for uh, the greater kingdom and for the building up of the kingdom of Christ, uh, two weeks uh, something exciting hits the south side, and that is the launch of another church down here. Uh, College Park Greenwood launches on September 9th. And if you're from the Indianapolis area, you know that College Park Church has been a church that uh, has been used greatly uh, by the Lord for the last decades around here. This is a place where the Word of God is taught, where the gospel is central, um, where Jesus is worshipped. And we are thrilled that coming to Greenwood is College Park Greenwood. And so uh, we wanted you to know about this because uh, we want you to be praying for this launch of a sister church coming to the area. We want you, if you know folks that are part of that, to let them know we're praying for them and cheering them on in this. And then uh, maybe you've uh, invited people to harvest in the past and uh, they just come and they're like, hey, thanks for the invite, but we don't sense this is the church home for us. We want you to know that this church is a church that the pastors and elders can commend to you as a fantastic place where the words taught, where the gospel is central, where Jesus will be worshipped. So tell people about this um, because we foresee locking arms with this church for a long time to come to uh, see the kingdom of Jesus Christ grow. Amen? And so just wanted you to know that that is coming to the area. Um, also on that Sunday, September 9th, will mark three years since we have launched as a church. And so uh, it's hard to believe that it's been almost three years, but in three years of uh, this church, um, what God has done here is nothing short than of miraculous. This is truly an evident work of God um, that uh, nothing could have manufactured this. God has just shown up in power, and he's answered the prayers of a small core group of people who would meet in a classroom and start praying for a church like this. And I believe one reason we have seen uh, what we have seen in our midst in these first three years is that God has done something special, and for the first three years of our church, protecting the unity of Harvest Bible Chapel. And now you know that this thing called unity is a fragile thing. Um, you can walk into a family or walk into a church or walk in somewhere, and it, uh, it can be very evident to you when there's a spirit of unity, when there's a spirit of a one-accordness there. It's kind of this deep sense you get when you walk in that, wow, this place is a place unified. Um, it is also very clear and very overt when you go somewhere and there is um, a lack of disunity there, right? You usually can sense that. You can tell that. And um, I bring this up because we've experienced in the first three years just a great spirit of unity here. But we know that unity within a church is fragile. And this is true for us here at Harvest now. And it was true for the early church in the book of Acts. Uh, today we begin a new sub-series in our big series through the book of Acts that's called For the Good of the Church. And what we're going to find as we turn to Acts chapter 15 today is there is a really, really massive deal going on in the church that is going to lead to a really, really important church meeting. This important church meeting is uh, throughout history been called the Jerusalem Council. Uh, basically, uh, here's what you have. 
It's been about 10 years since Peter first walked into a guy named Cornelius' house. And we saw this earlier on in the story of Acts. Peter goes up to Cornelius' house and he shares the gospel to a house full of, of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And much to like Peter's surprise at the time and much to the surprise of the church when they heard this, these Gentiles get saved. The Spirit of God uh, fills them, and they're now folded into the family. And in the 10 years that, that since this has happened, more and more Gentiles have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a great thing worthy of praise. And it wasn't surprising to the Jews that Gentiles had been folded in. There's Old Testament prophecies that spoke to this fact. But what has begun to happen in the church is there's not a lot of unity. There's some division. There's some um, difference of understandings of how exactly these Gentile Christians are supposed to live amongst these Jewish Christians. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's, there's some lack of unity on once a Gentile has come to Christ, do they also need to become Jews through and through as well? Uh, John Stott, a guy who's way smarter than I am, summarizes the issue going on in the church very well. And so I just want to read this extended quote because I think it sets up Acts chapter 15 in a great way. He says, The Jewish leaders had no difficulty with the general concept of believing Gentiles. For many Old Testament passages predicted their inclusion. But now a particular question was forming in their minds. What means of incorporation into the believing community did God intend for the Gentiles? So far it had been assumed that they would be absorbed into Israel by circumcision. And that by observing the law they would be acknowledged as bona fide members of the covenant people of God. Something quite different was now happening, however. Something which disturbed and even alarmed many. Gentile converts were being welcomed into fellowship by baptism without circumcision. They were becoming Christians without also becoming Jews. They were retaining their own identity and integrity as members of other nations. It was one thing for the Jewish leaders to give their approval to the conversion of Gentiles, but could they approve of conversion without circumcision, of faith in Jesus without works of the law, and of commitment to the Messiah without inclusion in Judaism? Was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world, and the church of Christ not as a Jewish sect, but as the international family of God? These were the revolutionary questions which some were daring to ask. Do you think Acts 15 and this church meeting is kind of an important one in the history of the church? It is. And what we're going to see here is we're going to see the, the, the church get together, the leaders of the church get together in a room, and they're going to start to ask these questions. If a Gentile comes to faith in Jesus, are we, does it also mean he has to adhere to the law and be circumcised and fully become a Jew? And you're going to see how they settle this issue. Now, why this is so important for us today is a couple of things. Number one, um, we are going to watch the way the early church works through a tense issue in a unified way. 
We are going to, let me say that again, we are going to watch the way the early church works through a tense issue in a unified way. Now, let me say this on that point. In the first three years of our church, we have not experienced many tense issues here. Uh, there, there's been this spirit of unity. It's been pretty, pretty smooth, and we've not experienced many tense issues. Now, because we're all human beings, do you think, yes or no, there will come a day where we'll have to, as a family, work through a tense issue? Yes or no? If you said no, you're only lying to yourself, okay? There will come a day where, as a church family, we'll have to work through a tense issue, meaning some theological issue will arise, and, and there'll be people in our church on different sides. Some, some ministry philosophy issue will arise, and there'll be people on different sides. Some event will hit our family, and it'll leave people on different sides. Now, hear me. It is possible for the church to work through tense issues as one family in unity. It is. Regardless of maybe what we've experienced in the past where that wasn't the case. And it's really important that we see how this church went about doing that. So when those tense issues arise in our family, we can follow suit. Amen? Now, what's even more important is not only how they worked through the tense issue, but they actually come out on the other side of this issue as one, one accord, unified family saying whatever is for the good of the church. That's the kind of spirit we want in this place. All right, man? Because here's the deal, church. Hasn't it been a blast? Hasn't it been awesome to watch what God will do in a unified body and to see what he's done in the last three years? Has that not been awesome? I want that for my kids. And I want that for my kids' kids, and I know you do too. That for generations to come, what might God be pleased to do with a church family that will stay unified around the centrality of some really important things and not get sidetracked by things that can just breed disunity? And so here's what we're going to see. In this chapter, we're going to see the church um, unify around a couple things. They're going to be reminded and they're going to unify around a common conviction. We're going to see what that conviction is. And then at the end of this meeting today, they're going to unify around some common commitments, a common commitment they're going to make to one another for the good of the entirety of the family. And if we can see the conviction and the commitment that they unify around, I believe this will breed great unity in our church for years and years to come. Amen? And so let me pray and ask for God's help, and then let's get into his word this morning. Father God, we come now. Lord, it's so sweet to preach a message on the unity of your body while our body experiences great unity. Lord, always more fun to preach on this when we're in seasons like this. So God, will you help us learn what we need to learn from this passage? God, will you help us understand how we remain unified around this conviction and this commitment that we see your early church make? God, will you please lead this time? God, there's a lot of teaching in this passage. Uh, Lord, there's a lot of just uh, us, us having to lean in with our minds. Lord, would you help us stay engaged? Lord, will you help um, just grip our hearts with your word here today? And Lord, most importantly, will you just get me and my words out of the way so that what is lifted up here today is your word that we can feast on? So God, help us now, and I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So remember, um, Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first missionary journey. They traveled all over the world. You see this reflected on the map with all the arrows, the outbound journey, the inbound journey. Now we find them back in the city of Antioch, and here's what's going to happen at this time in the city of Antioch. Uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says, but some men came down from Judea, and were teaching the brothers, 
unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Um, That's a bold statement right there. And now you see this statement in verse 1, and I think what maybe we can assume is, do you remember all those Jewish people who were chasing Paul from city to city, really upset with this gospel of grace they were bringing? We can assume that it's these same types of people who have now come to Antioch with this message. But here's the scary thing. It's not. This group of people coming with this message that unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved are actually coming from the church in Judea. This is a group that we'll call kind of the Christian legalizers. These, these Christians who believed that Gentiles could not just be saved by faith alone. They had to adhere to the Jewish way, the Jewish customs. This was a group of people who brought a very dangerous message, and it's a message that we'll call Grace Plus. Jesus Christ brings a good news message of grace, period. Anytime you see someone bring a message of grace plus, this is not the message of Jesus. The grace plus message is a message of legalism that always follows this formula. Unless you do blank, you cannot be saved. Anytime we hear that as followers of Jesus, if if what's in that blank is anything other than put your faith in Jesus Christ to be saved, unless you do, uh, unless you follow the sacraments, unless you obey the sacraments, unless you do this, unless you do this, you cannot be saved. That is not the good news message of Jesus, folks. Right? I mean, okay, okay, good. Wow. Woo! Just making sure we're tracking on that. Jesus brings a grace period message, not a grace plus message. And what you have now is you have some people coming up from the church in Judea who've said, unless you're circumcised, you are not saved. And you can imagine when word of this message reaches Paul and Barnabas' ear, um, they're ready to go doctrinal toe-to-toe with these guys. Verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. I love, the way, I love the way Luke writes that. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Like, what do you think that really looked like? Bro, say what? Really? You're bringing that into here? After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So there they are, doctrinal toe-to-toe. No, you are so wrong in this. This is not what Jesus taught. And they're going, guys, listen, we got to go down to, we got to go settle this once and for all. Like, we can't have this sort of teaching going about, we're going down to the church in Jerusalem, we're going to settle this thing once and for all, because we can't have teaching going around the world to these Gentiles we've just brought the gospel to, that they have to believe and they have to adhere to the law of Moses and be circumcised and all these things. And so here they go, down to the church in Jerusalem, verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So they're going, listen, can we tell you, church, about this missionary journey we just went on and all the Gentiles that were coming to know the Lord? Well, there's one group listening in on this who 
um, is just a bit uncomfortable by what they're hearing, and they want to chime in at this point. Verse, Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. They're not liking what they're hearing. They're hearing this message that Paul and Barnabas just traveled all over the known world to take the gospel to Gentiles, and they were teaching the Gentiles that they're saved by grace alone. And you have this group of, uh, what's it call them? Go back to verse 5. How, does it, how are they described? Who are they? They are what? They're, 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 they're what? They're, they're something else that come from the line of Pharisees. What are they? How are they described? They are believers. They're converted Pharisees. They come to this new walk in Christ from this legalistic background, and they're not comfortable with this grace period thing. They're trying to get their minds around, how can these Gentiles just come to faith and just keep living in their customs? They're not comfortable with grace, period. They want to add on to this grace plus. And they say, no, they need to do this. Now, this sparks the meeting. Here we go with the church meeting. One of the most important church meetings in the history of the church. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate. Okay, let's stop there. Because I want us to get to the scene of the meeting, right? Let's get to the scene of this church meeting. There's much debate going on. You can see the kind of divided, dotted line happen in the room as people run to the poles they're comfortable with. No, it's grace alone. And if we add on all of this law of Moses stuff, how is that grace? No, 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 yes, of course it's the grace of God. But you can't just have these Gentiles off living how they're like, we got to put the law, they got to adhere to the law, they got to be circumcised, they got to become um, not only Christians, but they need to be Jews with this Christian. And you can see this. Now, um, feel, feel, feel the volume go down as Peter stands up to talk. And after there had been much debate, verse 7, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the debate, you can see Peter stand. And I want you to try to feel the tone I believe he probably would have taught here. This wasn't a, brothers, get with it! I believe this was a, guys, guys, hey, guys, guys, guys. It's been almost like 10 years since I went over to Cornelius' place, right? And I was as shocked as you all when the Spirit of God came on those people 
And they became part of the faith family of Jesus Christ. But here's something we learned that day, didn't we? That God showed no distinction between us and them. It's the first thing Peter brings out as he's teaching here. There's no distinction between us and them. There's no distinction in the church of Jesus Christ of Gentile and Jew. This is how the church had been thinking about kind of this diagram here. The church up to this point is, yeah, there's, we're, we're in Christ, right, right? But there's Jews in Christ and there's Gentiles in Christ. And Peter goes, no, no, no. God shows no distinction. The church is people in Christ. And if God has shown no distinction in this, why are we trying to make a distinction in this? And then he makes a second point. He goes, and um, um, guys, how's this whole law of Moses been going for you guys? Here's how he says it. The picture he uses is that of a yoke. Why would we put on the Gentiles a yoke that we ourselves could never really get off of our neck? Like, None of us in here have gotten right with God through perfect adherence to the law. And now we're saying, yeah, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, guys. Come on. Come on. Boom. Slap the yoke on him. Guys, why would we do that? All of this culminating into his final point as he speaks in the meeting. And he says, for it's by grace. Period. For it's by grace. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, before I give you our first point, look at the first few words of verse 12. And all the assembly fell what? There was something about the reminder of grace there was something around this, about this reminder of this conviction that all of us start from a level playing field of being saved by grace that just de-escalated the tension of this thing. And I want to say it like this for us today, for what we need to learn, that we are one family. And we're one family unified by, here's the conviction we're talking about today, this conviction that we are saved by grace. That's the period mark. Ready? We are saved by grace. Period. There's no grace plus. Anytime someone comes to you with a message of, yeah, I know that about Jesus. I know that about Jesus. But you also have to do this. My, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's why the message of grace is so unifying. If we realize that in our church family, of all the people in this room right now and all the people who walked out of this room in first service, that regardless of what side of the tracks we grew up on, regardless of what kind of a, a walk of life we come from, regardless of what sin is in our past or what sin is not in our past, Regardless of if we were like the model moral citizen pre-getting saved or we were the reckless moral renegade pre-getting saved, all of us in here are at a level playing field that all of us needed the grace of God to be lavished on us in order to be saved. 
There is something about that that breeds this humility of unity to go, man, you were in the same boat I was, and I was in the same boat you were, and how great is the grace of our God to us. Grace is unifying. This conviction of grace is unifying because it means there is no classes of Christianity. There's not a first-class Christian and a second-class Christian and a third-class Christian. There's those in Christ who God has lavished his grace on. And you have this debate. You have this invisible, dotted, divided line of people going, no, 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 it's yes, grace, okay, cool, but plus this. And Peter stands up and he goes, guys, I just don't see a plus sign in God's economy. We're saved by grace. And the Gentiles are too. So let's not teach that and then put a yoke on these people and make them adhere to all of these customs that we grew up adhering to. Now, Peter, so let's get into that meeting. Peter's just spoken. The assembly's kind of reminded of grace. It grows quiet. Now, two others are going to stand up and speak here. Verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so Peter's just going, hey, can I remind you, 10 years ago, went up to Cornelius' house, God showed no distinction. Paul and Barnabas are now going up, and yeah, guys, listen, we just finished this missionary journey to all these cities, and I got to tell you, God is saving Gentiles like crazy. They are part of the family. The Spirit of God is dwelling in them. Now Paul and Barnabas sit down, and James, brother of Jesus James, leader of the church in Jerusalem James, is going to stand up, and now he's got something to say in the meeting. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, Peter has more names in the Bible than we can keep track of, okay? Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. Now he's going to quote from Amos 9. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the, what? And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of, from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Other translations in here, someone be bold, tell me what your verse says there. That we should not, oh, I need more boldness than that, unless we're all reading out of the ESV. We should not make it difficult. Thank you, Duran. That we should not trouble. That we shall not make it difficult. That we shall not trouble those of the Gentiles who are coming to faith. But, verse 20, should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. You're like, okay, what is up with those? We're going to come back to this. We're going to talk about what these four requirements are, but here's what we need to know. 
The church has just established that salvation is by grace alone, not grace plus. These are not um, conditions of salvation they've just listed here. This is not a new law that they have to adhere to. We're going to talk about why did the church in Jerusalem and this letter they're about to write to the Gentiles, why do they include these four things? We're going to get there. But look at what it says in verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, stop right here. Pause. Hit the pause button with me because we can get lost in what the point of the Jerusalem council is right here. The first part of the meeting, the church has just established and just reminded them, salvation is by grace. Good. Not grace plus. James stands up and he goes, I agree with what Peter has just said here. Listen to what Paul and Barnabas have just told us. Salvation is by grace alone. This is the conviction we rally around. Now James is going to go, but can we make some commitments to each other? Can we make some commitments as one family for the purpose of fellowship with one another? Because, back to verse 21, in every city where Gentiles are being reached for the Lord, there are also Jews being reached for the Lord. The law of Moses is read in those cities. And if we don't establish some common commitments for the purpose of family fellowship, there's, if we're going to forever be these, this, this dividing, this, 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 this factioning within the family. So can we commit some things to each other? This is what I believe these four things listed are. Now, Three of these have to do with ceremonial eating laws. Three of these, for the Gentiles, are preference issues. One of these is not just ceremonial law, but moral law. One of these is a sin issue point of emphasis. Which one of the four things listed is not quite like the others? No one wants to say sexual immorality in church, okay? Sexual immorality. Now let's look at this letter they're going to write back to the Gentiles in Antioch about these commitments they're going to seek to make together. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Seleucia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord, beautiful, having come to unity. It seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, and now they list the four that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and then one of these things is not like the other and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. 
farewell. Four things. First three, for the Gentiles, I don't believe to be sin issues. I believe them to be preference issues. We'll talk about those in a minute. The first one, or the fourth one listed that we're going to talk about first. Why do the Christians in Jerusalem feel a need to itemize out to these Gentile Christians, avoid sexual immorality? Why is this a sin point of emphasis? Here's why I believe it to be. In pagan cultures, um, sexual sin was just rampant. Actually, part of the worship to many pagan gods would include uh, the temple of that god being full of cult or temple prostitutes. The act of sex in their former way of life was actually an act of worship to their gods. I believe the Christians in Jerusalem are, are instructing that, hey, I just want to make sure Gentiles, we're all on the same page here. That is not the way of worship to, to the one true God. That is not the way of worship of Jesus. And they itemize out what I believe is a sin point of emphasis. Now to the first three. Brothers, Gentile brothers, can we make some commitments to each other? Can you avoid for us eating food that's been sacrificed to idols? And can you avoid from us eating strangled animals? And then connected to that, can you avoid for us eating any animal that still has the blood in it? What, what, what's up with this? It goes back to verse 21, I think. In every city, there's going to be Christians from a Jewish background, Christians from a Gentile background. The Jews, out of love, are surrendering their preference for all these Gentiles to become completely Jewish through and through. Now they're asking, can Gentiles, can you lovingly and gladly lay down a freedom that you would have to eat food like this? Will you lay down this freedom for the purpose of greater fellowship with your brothers and sisters who come from a Jewish background? The first three, in my opinion, are not salvific issues, we know that for sure, and are not sin issues. Why are they not sin issues? Paul actually will write to the Corinthians, what's food sacrificed to idols? There are no idols. You're free to eat that, but don't eat it if you're with what the Bible calls a weaker brother. That's not derogatory. It's just saying if you're with someone who it would violate their conscience to eat a food like that, don't eat it. Lovingly lay it down. This is what I believe is happening here. For the purpose of the fellowship of the one family, can we lay down some preferences so we can fellowship together over the table and in life? Second point that's important for us. We are one family unified by the commitment to surrender preferences for greater fellowship with the family. Now, I can see by your faces, you're like, what's up with strangled animals right now? We're not familiar with these types of eating laws. So, can I give you an illustration that might make more sense to our culture? Everyone say yes. Even if it's a bit emotionally charged? You're yes, I think. Remember, this is an illustration. Remember, it's an illustration for the purpose of making a point, so don't get hung up on the illustration. And I warned you that you might have a strong opinion on one side or the other of it, okay? I grew up in a church culture where to be in the same room as a can of beer was to sin. You're like, you're going there. I'm going there. <laughs> I grew up in a church culture 
where for me to go to a friend's house whose parents might have had alcohol in the fridge was to make me immediate, Mom, they had Budweiser. <laughs> as I grew, as, as I began to study what the scriptures say on this, here's, wh- here's where I land. Again, we can, we can debate over email this week if you land. I land that the Bible teaches to sin is not, or to drink is not a sin. To be drunk or under the control of alcohol is. So, there is freedom in Christ to leave here today. Wow, like the upbringing of it just feels like blasphemy. There's freedom in Christ to leave here today and to have a beer in your backyard. Now, remember this is an illustration for the purpose of making a point. Now, you leave here, you go to Applebee's or wherever you go after this place, you get a beer, knowing that the guy or the girl across from you has maybe had a past struggle with alcohol, that is not the loving thing to do. You leave here today, you go and get a beer, knowing that the person across from you may come from an upbringing like mine where just a beer on the table immediately makes them go, that's not the loving thing to do. And for you to go in that moment, I have freedom in Jesus to order this. Get over it. I'm drinking a beer here. That is not the WWJD thing to do. (laughs) There is freedom for that. You suspend and lovingly give away that freedom out of the good for your brother. This is what I believe the church in Jerusalem on the first three points is doing. Well, you, you, hey, you're not under the law that you can't eat strangled animals. But guess what? So many of the consciences of your Jewish brothers and sisters, like the con- their conscience is, will you lovingly lay down that preference for the good of the fellowship of the body? Now, let's see what the Gentiles in Antioch will do in response to this. So when they were sent off, verse 30, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. Now, are they going to go, whatever, we can eat what we want. Yeah, I get you on the whole sexual immorality thing. We're not going to do that, but we can eat whatever we want. Or will their attitude be vastly different? Verse 30, 31. And when they had read it, they what? They rejoiced. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time together, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Here's why they rejoiced, I believe. Because the news came back to them that their salvation was all of grace. It didn't mean that they had to become Jesus followers and then become Jews through and through as well. And here's also why they rejoice. That if laying down some of the freedoms and rights they might have in their faith is, is the best thing for the fellowship of the church as a whole, they're like, we gladly lay that down for the purpose of fellowship. And Harvest, listen, this message today has more pro- um, corporate, church-wide application than maybe it does personally. But the personal application in this is here. That if we can be people who are so centered that we share a common conviction that all of us are saved by the grace of God. 
None of us morally earned it. Even us, the, the, the morally upright people pre-Jesus are not any more worthy of God's grace than the moral rene- reckless renegades. All of us come from an evil playing field of needing the grace of Jesus Christ, period. If we can stay centered on that conviction, and then if we as a family can live with a spirit of trying to outdo each other and serve sacrifices, sacrificing and surrendering our preference things for the good of our brothers and sisters, God, I believe, will continue by the power of his spirit to lavish a spirit of unity on this place that we'll enjoy for generations to come. So when we move into a building one day and we go, I wish the carpet was blue and I wish it was green and why is that wall shaped like that? Can we all just say, we don't care as long as people are one to Jesus in here. And, 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 and yes, I have a little more freedom in this aspect of my walk with Jesus, but based on how I grew up, my conscience just won't allow me to do that. I gladly lay that down for you. And I don't make you feel bad about that. And I don't go, weaker brother. If we will live with a deep commitment to sacrifice joyfully and out of love the freedoms we have in Christ, God will keep a special unity in this place for a long time to come. Amen? So church, if you would, I just want to pray for us as we close and the worship team's going to come out. Stand with me as I do. And let me just leave us again with kind of the sermon in a sentence that we're a family. We're a family unified by this conviction that we're saved by grace and we're a family unified by a commitment to surrender our preferences to one another in love. And may God, by the power of his spirit, keep us this deeply unified family if we will commit to this conviction and this commitment. Father God, we ask for that unity. We ask for that unity not for unity's sake, but because of the reality that we as your church are your bride, which means we as your church reflect an aspect of you to this broken world watching in. And Lord, if we're not unified, what kind of reflection are we of you? And so God, would we just remain a place that is centered on this conviction that all of us are desperately in need of your grace? And God, would we remain a place where we joyfully lay down freedoms and preference issues out of love for our brothers and sisters in your name. God, I pray that your spirit would take Acts 15 today and you'd allow it to marinate and simmer in our hearts. And Lord, I'm I'm just asking now your spirit would do a way better job teaching that chapter to our hearts than I did today with it. Instruct us from it, Lord, now. And as we leave here with worship on our tongues, Lord, worship you, our great God, from our heart as we walk out. In Jesus' name.